And here we are, the season finale. Finally wrapping up the first season of the Preoccupation podcast. And it has been quite a ride. I've met a lot of interesting people along the way. A lot of people have reached out to me to share their experience and learning about Palestine and Palestinian history, their family story, the work that they've done. Met some amazing researchers, some great personalities, and and if nothing else, that's been that's been an incredible reward from this experience. And so for everyone who I've spoken to along the way, everyone who's reached out to me, thank you. Thank you for being part of this experience. Um, I am going to do something that I haven't done up to this point, and I've 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 really <laughs> I've given this a disproportionate amount of thought. Uh, I'm going to panhandle. So it turns out that making a podcast that is based on research is not just hard, but expensive. So if you'd like to support the podcast, there is a link on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. When you see this episode posted, there's a link at the bottom. If you'd like to support this podcast with whatever contribution, however small, um, I'd really appreciate it. And uh, if you can't, I still appreciate the fact that you're listening. So this is the season finale. Enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians, there never was, there never will be. One of the most contentious questions regarding Palestine is precisely when a Palestinian identity emerged. The history of many, or most, or or all national movements is often muddy and messy, and the Palestinian story really is no exception. And so it is the work of historians, of official state historiographers, of propagandists, of literary societies. It's their job to come together to comb through the muck and tell a story that is comprehensible. I have voluntarily taken it upon myself to join the fray and contribute to the telling, or really the retelling, of Palestine's story. And part of that process includes emphasizing bits of information that I find to be important and captivating, and leaving out bits of information that I, through subjective prejudice, deem to be unworthy of the final cut. Now, I don't think I'm doing this with any malicious intent, but this is just the nature of the beast. It's just the way that the 
process works. Otherwise, if I didn't do this, I would have 100,000 episodes with each one being nine hours long, and I would tell you the story of each subatomic particle between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, and I'm just not going to do that. In my experience so far with this project, I really have come to the conclusion that the job of the storyteller really does come down to how we choose to interpret the significance of events. Sometimes, sometimes it's really hard to determine the significance of really any historical event, even those in our own lives, until way after the fact. And even then, something that we deem to be a watershed moment may not be universally perceived as such to others. I mean, some of the most important events of our lives were totally unmemorable to others who shared in that experience. Your life-altering car crash was just another day at work for the paramedic who scraped you off the pavement. And so when I come across a moment that I think is important, it's my job as the storyteller to sell you its significance. I just need to make sure that I get the facts right. Well, so far in this story, I've given you what I think are the circumstances that made Palestinian peoplehood, Palestinian peoplehood as we understand it today, to be possible. I've told you about decades-long rule under an indigenous strongman, integration into the global economy, a diverse set of social classes, norms, and customs, and a unique balance of power reflected in the social arrangements of urban notables, peasant militias, and Bedouin tribes. All of these ingredients will become part of what we understand to be Palestinian peoplehood. But if you are listening to this final episode of season one, then you already know that I believe a people to be more than just the mere sum of their parts. What is still missing from the Palestinians at this point is a shared story that unites the group around a shared experience, a common cause, a common vision. To borrow from the work of educational theorist Etienne Wenger, the Palestinians at this point possess a shared repertoire, that is a common language, dialect, verbiage, terms that are unique to their locale, and that much is definitely true. They also possess the ability to engage with one another and to engage with their institutions in a way that someone from outside of the region would not have been able to do without appearing out of place. I mean, just to give you an example, remember those Nabulsi merchants in the episode that I had about Nablus? There were all sorts of cultural quirks that made the exchange of goods and services possible in Nablus and with the merchants of Nablus. And that knowledge, those quirks, would have been common throughout all of Palestine. Palestinians from Jerusalem, from Al-Khalil, from Hebron, from Yaffa, and elsewhere, they purchase garments from Nabulsi merchants. And so the localized customs of trade and commerce would have been necessary knowledge for really almost any inhabitant of Palestine. I mean, this is a long way 
for me to say that the Palestinians by this point have developed a lot in common. I mean, like I already said, they had even lived under an indigenous ruler, Lahar al-Umar, as well as successive strongmen for decades. This bound the people together socially and economically. Their interconnection at this point was such that maybe someone from outside of Palestine may have thought that these were one, quote-unquote, people. But until the 1830s, they still lacked something essential in the development of peoplehood. And what they lacked, something called a, a shared enterprise, a purpose, a common goal that they as a people were working toward. And so it is fitting that in this final episode of season one, I wanted to share with you first spark of Palestinian peoplehood, the first instance where the Palestinians came together for a single purpose, the moment where a people were born. To begin this part of the story, I once again find myself starting outside of Palestine. I want to take us to the western region of the Ottoman Empire in modern-day Greece, where a new kind of revolt is underway. Over the past several episodes, I have spent a lot of time speaking about identity and storytelling and the relationship between the two, and you could go so far as to say that those concepts are a secondary part of this entire series. Well, by 1824, a new story is emerging in this predominantly Christian part of the Ottoman Empire. Unlike so many other stories kicking around at this time, this story fuels the desire for self-determination in that part of the empire. In the 1820s, the people who we now know as Greeks were self-identified as Romans and had really thought of themselves as Romans since the collapse of the Byzantine Empire. Now, I'm no expert on Greece or Greek nationalism, but I would love to hear about why these people made the transition from Roman to Greek. But in any case, the dynamics of the revolt and the nationalism of these Romans or Greeks is just a little bit outside the scope of what I intend to cover. Where I want to focus is on the Ottoman reaction to the independence movement in Greece. Now, as I have alluded to in the past two episodes at least, the Ottoman Empire in the early 19th century is economically and militarily lagging behind its European rivals. Now, to make matters worse, the timing of the revolt was incredibly inconvenient for the Ottoman Empire because it coincided with an audacious plan a plan straight out of the high port to disband the core of the Ottoman army, to disband the Janissaries. Now, the Janissaries, not unlike the Mamluks, were essentially slave soldiers who had formed their own warrior class. Past attempts to reform the Jan Janissaries had led to coups, but in the mid-1820s, the empire 
was more committed than ever to finally modernizing the army, and it's hard to blame the Ottoman Empire. The Janissaries had been underperforming for decades. Well, when the Greek revolt kicked off, the high port, the central authority in Istanbul, was in such a state of weakness that the high port had a difficult time suppressing this rebellion on its own. In order to suppress the Greek revolt, the Ottoman Empire turned to its subjects in Egypt, the Neo-Mamluks, who by this time were led by an incredibly powerful figure named Muhammad Ali Pasha. And by the 1820s, Muhammad Ali Pasha had expanded his influence well into the Arabian Peninsula's Hejaz region, that is the region that contains Mecca and Medina, and like many of the characters that we have discussed in this era of the Ottoman Empire, Muhammad Ali Pasha ruled, I mean, more or less autonomously. More often than not, he simply imposed his will on the high port. The trouble in Greece, trouble from an Ottoman perspective, the trouble in Greece began in 1821. But as European powers began to swoop in and fan the flames of rebellion, the Ottoman Empire found itself increasingly unable to suppress the rebellion. It is in this context that Muhammad Ali Pasha was called in to help the Ottoman Empire suppress the rebellion. Well, by 1826, the Ottoman Empire, even with the help of Muhammad Ali Pasha, was unable to suppress the Greek revolt. Now here, here's where things get really interesting, and for a few different reasons. The success of the Greek revolt was just one more sign that the Ottoman Empire was incapable of maintaining the integrity of the empire. This clear example of weakness was on display at the height of the colonial era. So one would imagine then that the powers of Europe would immediately swoop in to devour the Ottoman Empire. Despite the fact, and yet, Despite the fact that vast chunks of the empire and the broader Muslim world were being steadily eaten away throughout the 19th century. I mean, perhaps there's no more famous example than the losses of Algeria in 1830. We know that the Ottoman Empire itself survived the colonial scrambles of the 19th century. And so, why did Europe, at the peak of its colonial powers at a time when the moral legitimacy of colonialism still went unquestioned in the world, why did Europe not gobble up the Ottoman Empire? Well, one thing to keep in mind is that despite its slew of military defeats, the Ottomans at their core, they were the descendants of warrior people from the steppe. This empire may lose territory here and there, but it was not going to go down without a fight. And everyone knew that. But an even bigger problem for the European colonial powers was that all of Europe's major powers wanted a piece of the Ottoman pie. If one nation were to try to come in and take the whole pie, or even a piece that was too big, the ensuing scramble could trigger a regional conflict that could engulf the entirety of Europe. This gave rise to the 19th century problem known as the Eastern Question. 
So the Eastern question wrestled with what Europe saw as the inevitable collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Simply put, the Eastern question asked not if, but how the Ottoman Empire should be divided among competing European powers, and until such a time when this resolution was viable, what should be done with the Ottoman Empire's Christian communities, such as the Armenians? The Eastern question became an increasingly important part of the European diplomatic conversation in the wake of the Greek rebellion. And just as the Greek rebellion invited new problems to the Ottoman Empire from the outside, so too did this rebellion present problems for the empire from within. You see, despite their failure in repressing the revolt, the incredibly powerful Muhammad Ali Pasha fully expected to be rewarded for his effort. And when it seemed obvious to him that the high port was unwilling or unable to pay him for his troubles, conflict between Muhammad Ali Pasha and the high port became inevitable. A conflict that the Ottoman Empire was not at all prepared for because, as I alluded to earlier, in 1826, the Ottoman Empire decided to move against the Janissaries. In an event remembered as the auspicious incident, the Ottoman Empire essentially declared war on the Janissary Corps. Thousands upon thousands of Janissaries were killed or imprisoned or exiled. The Ottoman Empire, since the Nidham al-Jadid reforms, had been working on modernizing their army, but as I hope you are all aware, the modernizing of armies takes time. And so, in the early 1830s, Muhammad Ali Pasha, Egypt's most powerful Mamluk, moved against his former Ottoman masters. The Ottoman Empire, having just annihilated its old army and not yet finished developing its new army, was powerless to stop him. By 1831, Muhammad Ali was in control of all of greater Syria, including Palestine. To say that this was a seismic change in the region is an understatement. For 300 years, Greater Syria had firmly rested in the hands of the Ottoman Sultan. In those centuries, the Ottomans, alongside the indigenous population, had developed a complex web of power and incentives that were widely understood by the local populations with predictable cast of winners and losers. The merchants, the Tujar or the Effendis, depending on the term that you like, the Bedouins, the, the notables, the Ayan, the ulama, the scholars, the Christians and the Jews, they all knew their place and they all understood their relationship to the empire. Well, in light of this, most of Palestine's ruling families approached their new rulers with extreme caution. And I want to zoom in on a few of these notable families. You may recall from a previous episode that the Tuqans, the premier merchant family of Nablus, 
had a very close relationship with the governors of Damascus. Well, regime change and the arrival of a new order meant that the governor of Damascus was going to change, and so the Tuqans found themselves short of a major ally in the region. But they would have to grin and bear these changes. The Husseinis of Jerusalem, they deployed their traditional tone of cautious diplomacy, unsure of what the future would hold. But by contrast to these two families, and this, I mean, really is a great part of the story. Okay, if you are not at the top of the food chain, change can present an opportunity for upward social mobility. The Abdul Hadi family of Nablus, they saw this as an opportunity to move a few rungs up the food chain. And so when Muhammad Ali's army arrived in Palestine, the Abdul Hadis went all in, in support of their new ruler. Needless to say, this put them in very good standing with the new regime. And so let's focus here for a moment and see what the earliest days of Egyptian rule looked like from the perspective of the Palestinians. Muhammad Ali's representative in Palestine was Ibrahim Pasha. Now, Bishara Dumani says that Ibrahim Pasha was Muhammad Ali's son. Uh, Baruch Kimmerling uh, agrees with him on that. Ilan Pape says that it is his nephew who uh, Muhammad Ali Pasha loved like a son. I mean, in, in any case, Ibrahim Pasha was entrusted with managing the affairs of greater Syria on behalf of Muhammad Ali Pasha, and that included Palestine. And so over the course of the following 10 years, Ibrahim Pasha and Muhammad Ali Pasha would aim to completely redesign life in Palestine. Ibrahim Pasha Ibrahim Pasha wished to transform Greater Syria into a showpiece. He wanted to transform the region into a bustling cosmopolitan wonder. And very early into his reign, he began to develop Yaffa, in particular, to precisely deliver on that vision. He and Muhammad Ali also desired to massively expand the strength of the Egyptian fighting force in order to fully implement Egyptian rule over the newly acquired territories. Also, I'm sure that they had the wherewithal to consider either finishing off the Ottoman Empire or, at the very least, defending themselves from a resurgent sultan later on. In order to fulfill their vision for greater Syria, and in order to strengthen this rule over this land, the new Egyptian rulers moved to ensure that they could not be challenged by the elites who just moments ago were loyal Ottoman subjects. So to this end, Muhammad Ali and Ibrahim Pasha moved to end the preferential treatment allotted to the notables in particular and to the Sunni Muslim majority in general. The judiciary was to be secularized and the ruling elite, the ruling elite who dominated the courts would largely be left out of this new order. And so I think on the surface, massive infrastructure upgrades, 
strengthen central government, legal reforms, these all sound like pretty standard ingredients in any you know, quote-unquote modernization campaign. And in our modern discourse, modernization is essentially synonymous with progress. But as I sink my teeth into this story, I think you're going to appreciate that reforms of this magnitude are actually pretty devastating to indigenous ways of life. I mean, I could have summarized the last 20 minutes by simply saying that Muhammad Ali and Ibrahim Pasha desired to create something that had never existed in Palestine before. They desired to create a state. A state as I have defined it for the last six episodes. An institution which possesses a monopoly on violence. An institution that stands alone in its ability to arbitrate and administer over justice. The new rulers made this much very clear. In early communications with the population of greater Syria, they portrayed themselves as, and this is what their documents actually read, al-Dawla al-Masriya al-Adila, the just Egyptian state. Though later, in an effort to create a regime as everlasting as the Ottoman Sultanate, Muhammad Ali opted for the title Al-Khidawi, the Khedive, a title of Persian origin, essentially meaning the ruler. Muhammad Ali and Ibrahim Pasha were about to discover what generations of reformers would go on to discover over the course of the last 200 years. They were about to discover that local populations are not always willing to pay the price necessary for the adoption of a new system with very uncertain outcomes. There are sacrifices that you and I have already made, or that were made for us even before we were born, that the Palestinians of the 1830s just found too bitter to swallow. This struggle between these forces of modernization and indigenous ways of life is ongoing to this very day. I mean, I'm recording this episode just as America, after 20 years of war and occupation, finally plans to withdraw from Afghanistan, a war that has lasted for so long that some of the people fighting it weren't even born when it began. And as the Taliban races toward Kabul, I think the most would agree, most would agree that the war in Afghanistan has accomplished remarkably little. And to those of us living in modern, industrialized, capitalist nation-states, we sort of marvel in awe as to why anyone, anyone, would want to continue herding their goats up grueling mountain paths rather than live the comfortable life that could be afforded to them if they just simply complied with the global order. But it is precisely that incredulity that leads us to make the same mistake again and again. So let's return our attention back to Palestine to see what plays out, because you're going to find it somewhat familiar. The first group to suffer under Egyptian rule were the notables of Jerusalem. You know, take a moment to remember 
who these notables are as I tell you what happens next. The notables of Jerusalem, by and large, are descendants of families who claim prophetic lineage, who live by collecting taxes from the properties they manage. And this includes the taxes from Christians and Jews for maintaining their places of worship. They form the judiciary and the educated class of the holy city. Try to imagine, then, their surprise when Ibrahim Pasha arrives and informs the notables that not only will they no longer be permitted to collect taxes from the non-Muslim population, but that they would have to pay a few new extra taxes themselves. This new policy was just one of many similar policies that was designed to handicap the ruling elite while also creating a more level playing field between Palestine's Muslim majority and the Jewish and Christian minorities. Now, similar to Nablus, the Egyptian regime chose to place the premier family, the Husseinis, out in the cold in favor of the Khalidi family. Now, I say similar to Nablus because in Nablus it was the Tuqan family who was placed out in the cold in favor of the Abdul Hadis. But I think the Khalidis in particular would have considered this kind of a hollow victory. With the secularization of the judiciary, the Khalidis, who held very high positions in the Sharia courts, would have found themselves lost in the new system. And so a fair question is why? Why would a ruler who belongs to the Muslim majority embark on a series of reforms that antagonizes the ruling Muslim elite? Why was the Khadival regime so fixated on secularizing the judiciary? The intentions of Muhammad Ali Pasha and Ibrahim Pasha are the subject of extensive debate among historians, and I will share with you some of the more plausible explanations. One explanation is that the Egyptian regime was genuinely committed to liberal, egalitarian ideals that put Muhammad Ali on a collision course with a conservative local elite. Though I think the Jerusalem elite probably would have been blown away to find themselves perceived as anti-Christian. In the previous decade, during the years of the Greek revolt, Christian jubilation at a Greek victory, real or perceived jubilation, mind you, caused serious tensions on the streets of Jerusalem. Now, to make matters worse, the governor of Damascus at the time poured fuel on the fire with his own dose of anti-Christian rhetoric. It was the notables of Jerusalem who stepped in to save their Christian neighbors and to stave off angry mobs. So I imagine then then in the mind of the notables, the insinuation that Jerusalem's notables were unfair to the Christian and Jewish residents must have come as a shock. Personally, I'm not so convinced of this egalitarian hypothesis, and if we zoom out of Palestine just a little bit, we can find explanations that are, in my view, much more viable. In the 1820s and 30s, European involvement in the Ottoman Empire began to significantly pick up steam. Remember the Eastern question from earlier in the episode. While many believe that Muhammad Ali was trying to put himself on good footing with the local Christian communities who, by that point, 
we're providing the pretext involuntarily providing the pretext for further European intervention. So simply put, if the Christians of the Levant are equal to the Muslims, there should be no legitimacy to further European intervention, right? Well, one thing that strengthens this hypothesis, the hypothesis that the Egyptian regime was primarily interested in appeasing Europe, is the fact that during the reign of Muhammad Ali, he and his regime allowed for something that the Ottomans had not consented to in their 300-year reign over Greater Syria. Muhammad Ali and Ibrahim Pasha allowed for foreign consuls to set up shop in Jerusalem and Damascus. Now, the significance of this may be lost on some of the listeners. So let me explain why this is so important. I may have told this story already, but I'll make it brief. A few centuries before all of these events that I'm discussing in this episode, the French had attempted to set up a consulate in Jerusalem. And truth be told, the Ottomans had actually accepted it. It was the notables of Jerusalem seeing this major encroachment by the Franks those descendants of the Crusaders, upon the holy city, they wrote to the Sultan and asked that the French consul be moved outside of the Holy Land. And so, the French consul was set up in Sidon, in what is modern-day Lebanon. So when Muhammad Ali allowed these foreign consuls to settle in Jerusalem, he was overturning hundreds of years of precedent. This began a new phase in the capitulations. From this point on, foreign nationals, and to a lesser extent, Christians and Jewish, Christian and Jewish Ottoman subjects, could appeal directly to these European consuls who represented governments far more powerful, far more powerful than that of the Sultan. Between 1830 in the First World War, the capitulations and these foreign consuls would become a major source of resentment and frustration within the Ottoman Empire. All right, so let's refocus. Let's go back to the notables of Jerusalem who have now lost their source of income. And in the case of the Husseinis, they've lost their prestige, their political power, their influence. Now, so now, what does it really matter if a few notable families have been knocked down a few pegs? What does it matter? Well, if these reforms just stop there, then you'd probably be right if you're thinking that. But the reforms did not stop there. And that brings me to the next major reform of the Egyptian regime. Conscription. In another major departure from precedent, Muhammad Ali's regime was adamant that mass conscription would include everyone. The notables of Jerusalem, the merchants of Nablus, the Bedouin, everyone. And so agrarian families in particular, which made up what 90% of Palestine at that time, they were devastated to learn that they would lose thousands of young men to foreign wars 
And unlike the Ottomans during the invasion of Napoleon, Muhammad Ali's regime would not take no for an answer. In addition to conscription, the new rulers were adamant that only they would possess the means to fight. The peasants discovered that the new regime was going to ask them to lay down their arms and submit those weapons to the state. The disarmament of the peasants was a necessary part of creating this new political entity, the just Egyptian state. Naturally, this infuriated powerful peasant tribes, and none were more furious than the tribe of Abu Ghosh just outside of Jerusalem. Now, I don't think I've spoken too much about the Abu Ghosh tribe. This is one of those things that they come up again and again, but I feel like I've had to kind of push them out of the story just to make the narrative work. So let me just say a little bit about Abu Ghosh now. They were the most powerful peasant tribe surrounding the Jerusalem area. And the interplay between the Abu Ghosh and the notables of Jerusalem and the Bedouins outside of Bethlehem was similar to the dynamics in Nablus, which I discussed on that previous episode on Nablus. And like Nablus, the Abu Ghosh furiously resisted the prospect of both disarmament and conscription. Now, perhaps I have not done a good enough job up until this point, to explain why the peasants were so adamant that their boys do not get dragged off to go fight in foreign wars. And by foreign wars, well, I think to most listeners, the most familiar reference we have to conscription are the two world wars, and and for my American listeners, probably Vietnam. Well, conscription for the Palestinian peasants of the 1830s would have possessed a few added layers of difficulty that I think you should consider. Now, I'll let historians uh, Baruch Kimmerling and Joel McDowell explain. Quote, Nothing alienated the local Arabs as much as Ibrahim's demands, that is Ibrahim Pasha, Ibrahim's demands for conscripts. Peasants were all well aware that conscription was little more than a death sentence. The term of service was frequently for life. And, given the sanitary conditions and military technology of the day, there was little chance parents would ever see their sons again. End quote. So far as the peasants could tell, their sons were being dragged off into wars without end, in lands with unpronounceable names, leaving their farms without much-needed labor, and leaving their tribes defenseless against external threats from thieves or marauding Bedouins. And this brings me to the last item on the Khedival reforms and the impact it had on the Bedouins of Palestine. The final reform that I will be discussing that was instituted by the Egyptians was the centralization of the right to impose taxes. Simply put, the Egyptian regime wanted to ensure that it and it alone was permitted to collect taxes. I want to emphasize again that Muhammad Ali's main objective here was the creation of a modern state. Well, as one historian put it, the state is the nemesis of the Bedouin. 
by nearly all accounts, what the Bedouins valued above all else was their freedom. The freedom to live where they want, how they want, and move as they please. For centuries, the Bedouins sustained themselves by moving goods and charging tolls for the protection of goods moving through their lands. To the Bedouin, the Egyptian reforms meant that they would lose their livelihood, as the tolls that they had been charging since time immemorial were now going to be criminalized. Conscription, taxation, disarmament, and the obliteration of the traditional order were all necessary evils in order for Muhammad Ali to create his modern state. But in 1834, something snapped. Never before had the urban notables, the peasants, the merchants, and the Bedouins of Palestine all been so negatively impacted by the same force. In 1834, this discontent erupted into a full-blown rebellion. It is hard to pinpoint precisely where this rebellion began. But one narrative of the events has it beginning with the notables of Jerusalem and spreading to the merchants and peasants. Now, the, the reason it's so hard to pinpoint is because the discontent with the Egyptian regime was so widespread. As Judith Mendelssohn Rood put it, quote, The policies of the Khedival government brought very real changes to all four groups that participated in the rebellion of 1834. Initially, the groups in opposition were the Effendiyat of Jerusalem, the majority of the Umara, the Umara is the term that she uses for the merchants of Nablus, so the majority of the Umara, the Abu Ghosh clan of Jerusalem and their allies of Samhan, and Bedouin of Bethlehem and Hebron regions. In particular, the Bedouin opposed Ibrahim Pasha on economic grounds, since he had removed their traditional rights to collect fees for services, had imposed the firda, that is another tax, extorted tribute, and in return for their right of pasturage, required them to transport grain for the army. The new obligations enforced by the Khedival government were unbearable. They were forced to take flight or face imprisonment, death, or conscription. End quote. And so at this point, pre-existing alliances between urban notables, merchants, and powerful peasants, and Bedouin families were enough to create a powerful anti-Muhammad Ali Pasha confederacy. This was very important because the urban notables alone, now divorced from their Ottoman patrons, as well as from their sources of income, really were hamstrung. Thankfully for the notables, the discontent was equally felt by all of the other social classes, particularly the Fallahin, the peasants. With the discontent at a boiling point, Kimmerling and Migdal provide us with the catalyst for what comes next. Quote, the revolt's first signs 
came on May 19, 1834, when a number of important families and sheikhs from Nablus, sheikhs being tribal chiefs, sheikhs from Nablus, Jerusalem, and Hebron informed Ibrahim's civil and military governors they could not supply the quotas of conscripts for military service demanded of them. The peasants, so went the claim, had simply fled from the villages into the difficult mountainous terrain to the east. Since Ibrahim was already facing similar resistance in northern Syria, in the area east of the Jordan River and the Arabian Peninsula's Hejaz, where his forces had suffered heavy casualties, the notables' declaration would not have been totally unexpected. His response was to postpone conscription in those other areas, but to maintain strict enforcement of the policy in Palestine. Kimmerling and McDowell go on to say, quote, His decision turned out costly. Riots first broke out in the Hebron region. When Egyptian troops arrived, Fallahin from the village of Sa'ir, supported by Bedouins, killed about 25 soldiers, and Hebronites overcame the town's small garrison, arresting Ibrahim's governor. End quote. In this whole drama, perhaps the most dramatic scene of this entire revolt unfolds in the late spring of 1834 when the residents of Jerusalem awoke to find the breathtaking sight of 15,000 armed fellahin surrounding the city, at least 2,000 of whom were carrying rifles. The revolt was now in full swing. The first mass uprising in the history of Palestine was underway. And it may not be obvious right away, but this, this is the moment where the Palestinian people were born. The moment where urban notables, merchants, peasants, and Bedouins from all over Palestine came together and rallied around a single cause to drive out this foreign force from their land. Now, I need to be clear here. The 1834 revolt was not a fight for independence of Palestine. Most historians agree that Palestinians simply wanted to be Ottomans again. They just wanted things to be the way they were before. But this shared experience was enough to transform the disparate inhabitants of Palestine into the people of Palestine. A people with a common understanding of the past. A people with a unified vision for the present. A people with a shared vision for the future. And at this juncture, that vision for the future was one in which Muhammad Ali did not rule over Palestine. The sheer scale of the revolt was enough to weave this incident into the narrative of every Palestinian family from every strata of society, from Gaza to Al-Khalil to Hebron, from Jerusalem to Nablus, the revolt itself failed. And as history would have it, the Ottomans returned anyway a mere six years later. But from that day on, there was a single incident which was common to the collective memory of all Palestinians. 
the die was cast and the first chapter in the story of the Palestinian people was written. I mean, there is another remarkable thing about this watershed moment in Palestinian history. Something so significant, and yet it is almost certain that those who were present at the time did not and could not have seen it. The revolt of 1834 gave Palestine something that every great story needs. When you think of Palestinian symbols, what come to mind? I mean, anyone familiar with Palestine is familiar with the handful of symbols that evoke really powerful emotions about the Palestinian people. You think of the black and white checkered kufiyya. You think of the olive tree. You think of wild thyme. That's za'atar for my Arabic speakers. You think of the debke folk dance. All of these are symbols of Palestine and Palestinian identity. But all of these are symbols that derive their value from their relationship to Palestine's most enduring symbol, the Falah himself. The revolt of 1834, which was immortalized by the Palestinians as, quote, the year the peasants came to Jerusalem, gave Palestine its national symbol. It gave the story of Palestine its protagonist. And to this very day, the Falah is very much the anthropomorphized representation of the Palestinian people. He is the Palestinian nation. The Falah has become the vessel through which the oral traditions of a diasporic people have survived. The stories and songs of men and women have become a distinctive part of the Palestinian national narrative. Moreover, the condition of the Fallahin stands as a means to reliably gauge the health of the nation. When the Fallah is free, free to live and work and imagine, Palestine is free. And conversely, the opposite is true. And as I'm sure all of you know, Later events in Palestinian history will see the core of Palestine's indigenous population uprooted from their homes. Well, in such a story, among such a people, the Falah's steadfast rootedness is not merely an endearing trait. It is the most admirable quality one can possess among a diasporic people. The experience of the Falah in the 1834 revolt also solidified a value that, I mean, while already natural to the Fallahin, to the peasants, now became a Palestinian national principle. The principle of resistance in and of itself as a victory. Kimmerling and Migdal write regarding the failure of the 1834 rebellion, quote, Throughout the country, the rebels were cruelly handled. About 10,000 Fallahin were recruited and shipped to Egypt. Sections of entire towns, including the Muslim quarter of Bethlehem, were destroyed, and their inhabitants were expelled or killed. And, in a measure that struck very hard, 
even given all the other atrocities those in Palestine faced. The Egyptians disarmed the population. For Muslim men, the rifle had become part of their identity, a symbol of honor and freedom. End quote. Just realize that the disarmament of the Palestinians stung just as hard as their death and expulsion. From this point on, the mere ability to resist, as well as resistance itself, became central parts of the Palestinian national narrative. You know, an interesting part about the Falah, like any good symbol, is that the Falah is often voiceless. The Falah is the subject of discussion, but rarely the narrator. Moreover, the Falah is malleable, offering storytellers the flexibility necessary to spin their tale in the way that they see fit. Consider this. In the official historiography of nationalist discourse regarding Palestine, the Falah offers evidence of deep-rootedness. The Falah is authentically Palestinian and is admired as a possessor of a unique culture. The Falah is uniquely Palestinian. In the socialist reconstruction of Palestinian history, which became very popular in the mid-20th century, it is the Falah who stands firm in the face of imperial ambitions. The Falah is a beacon of truth repeatedly abandoned by the petty bourgeoisie and their colonial masters. In this story, it is the proletarianization of the Falah in the 1920s and 30s that gives rise to the most unified resistance in Palestine's history. And of course, almost precisely 100 years after the revolt of 1834, 100 years after the Fallahin gathered outside the walls of Jerusalem's old city, a thundering voice will roar from the pulpit of Haifa's Istiqlal Mosque. Sheikh Izzuddin al-Qassam will implore his congregates to liberate their land from colonialism. And it is the peasant, the Falah, this time appearing stalwart and pious, who will heed his call. Through their symbolic value, the Falah becomes Palestine. My goal this season was to share with you the story of Palestine. A story about much more, about so much more than just the struggle of an indigenous people against insurmountable odds. A story about more than dispossession and ethnic cleansing. This first season was the story of a land and the people who inhabit it. It is the story of their indigeneity the complexity of their society, and the birth of their peoplehood. As I've said to you before, this is a long journey, but I promise I'm just getting started. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
Oh, 